But for now, please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 19, this evening, verses 41 through 48. Luke 19, verse 41, please stand together with me and hear God's word for us. Luke 19, 41. Now, as Jesus drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, if you had known, even you, especially in this, your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Then he went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in it, saying to them, It is written, My house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people sought to destroy him and were unable to do anything, for all the people were very attentive to hear him. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that we would better understand the words of Jesus and the heart of our Christ, and more and more believe him, and believe in him tonight, all of us, in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated, brothers and sisters. Here in the Gospels, we find Jesus revealing himself to us, and effectively God is revealing himself to us in Christ. So we want to know, what is God like? Children, did you ever wonder what God is like? What is God like? Have you ever met God? You'll probably say what Pastor Swanson is like. Come to my house. You've interacted with me before. But what is God like? Well, what we find is God revealing himself in Jesus. So to read about Jesus, we're reading about God. The relationship of God the Father and God the Son, as we know, is very intimate and so if we want to understand the nature of God, we look at the nature of Christ, we see something of God. God reveals his character, his actions, in the life and the teachings of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the final revelation of God. That's what we read in Hebrews chapter 1. Now here we find that Jesus is emotional. Jesus is emotional. Now there are certain cultures that are less emotional than others, and we get that. Sometimes I say there are certain cultures in which there's a, there's a little guy inside just jumping up and down and raising his hands and shouting hallelujah, but that doesn't show very much amongst those particular peoples, and that's all right. It's all right. Different cultures have different personalities and different ways in which they reveal their emotions, and that's all right. Nevertheless, we are to, to be emotional, we are to express emotion in our ministry. That's, that's critical. There are some who don't want emotions, and they wouldn't want Jesus attending the church, let alone leading the service. But what we don't want is sort of an academic, detached ministry that's common among the highly educated clergy, or certain of the highly educated clergy, we don't want that. We don't want it to be detached. What does that mean? That means that we're not 
too concerned, that this is not as relevant to us or to each other as the Word of God conveys it. So it, it, it should be something that is received in faith, and it should affect our emotions as well as our minds. We want sanctified emotions, just as we want a sanctified mind and every other part of our lives sanctified. So, in the text tonight, we find that Christ is weeping over Jerusalem. And, and he's angry over the hypocrisy and the wrong use of the temple in Jerusalem. So, we have both manifestations of Christ's emotions in this passage. Now, the question I want to answer tonight is, why this emotion? Why these expressions of emotion? Emotion give us a little bit of a signal as to the, the passion, the commitment, the, the ultimate vision or mission or the focal point that's being brought to bear in the ministry of Christ. So emotions can give us a sense of something that is important. You know, someone's voice breaks. You know, somebody raises their voice. Suddenly we get the impression there's something important here. There's a commitment to, an emotional commitment to what is being said or to the proposition that we're talking about. So now if there's no emotion whatsoever, we doubt that there's commitment. We doubt that this is of any real import to us. So emotion heightens the importance, the significance of what is being discussed or what is being brought out in the particular story about Jesus. Now right emotional expressions is tied directly into what? The heart. I don't believe that emotions are really a part of the heart itself. The heart is the center of the being. But what are emotional expressions? But they are the expressions of the love or the hate that exists within the heart. The heart is what? The heart is that which is the very inside of you. It's that part of you that loves something and hates other things. What we find is that God loves. God loves certain things. God loves certain people. God loves His Son. God the Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Father. And this is a commitment, a heart commitment, we would call it. So whenever you say, well, what is the heart? The heart is that which loves. You know, what, what is it that you love? Well, the heart is the thing that ex- exhibits uh, that, that love. God loves, God hates as well. We find that our Lord Jesus Christ hates the deeds of the Nicolaitans. He is angry with the wicked every day. He hates all workers of iniquity. So we we find these things throughout Scripture. He deeply loves His covenant people, which includes those members of the Old Testament church, those whom He covenanted Himself to. And so in Matthew chapter 23 and Luke chapter 19, we find the same thing in which Jesus is weeping over the city. Now, in Matthew 23, very interesting passage, we find these woes to the Pharisees, the scribes, and others. So there's all these woes in Matthew 23, followed up by an immediate. So he's got certain words of rebuke and words of of attack upon those systems of doctrine and those folks that are expressing themselves in hypocrisies and such. So we have these woes throughout Matthew 23, and then it's followed up directly. This is what's so interesting, is we have this emotional expression of Christ towards 
these hypocrisies of the Jewish leaders of the day, and then it's followed up immediately with Jerusalem, O oh Jerusalem, you kill the prophets. How, how often I would have gathered your children together as a hen that gathers her children under her chicks, under her feathers. So this is an expression of Christ's uh, emotions, of his love and his hatred. Now, what comes through this passage is the premonition that a divorce is about to happen. It's probably the worst possible situation that a person go go through. Maybe there's worse things, but in terms of relational breakdown, the the divorce is tough. And the premonition that a divorce is about to happen, once it's happened, there's recovery that comes afterwards. But the premonition itself is torturous. And this is what is happening. We are seeing the breaking down of the covenant relationship between Old Testament Israel and the Lord. And so there is this cutting off that's about to happen. Paul speaks of it in Romans 11. And it's very tough. You have to understand that God loves his covenant people. He's expressed this to him, to Israel all the way through. So now may the Spirit of God enable us to understand the heart of our Lord Jesus as he, he weeps and as he, he expresses himself with this hot anger against the wrong expressions of worship at the temple. So first we find that Jesus weeps. Now as he drew near, he saw the city of Jerusalem, he wept over it, saying, if you had known, even you especially in this year, your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from you, for, your, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side. Now here we see the humanity of Jesus. As Jesus weeps, we see something of his humanity. Now I do believe that God expresses himself, the deity of God expresses himself, the deity of Christ, God the Father, will express themselves in sadness, but not so much in the expression of tears. So here we have the humanity of Jesus. Now, let's be careful here. We find amongst a number of groups today that Jesus needs a facelift, a decent publicity campaign. And so there have been a couple of efforts to bring this about. There's been a billion-dollar campaign called He Gets Us, in which, well, there were some ads shown on the Super Bowl, and the Mormons also have produced The Chosen. The Mormons and other groups, evangelical groups, have come together to produce The Chosen. And the idea is that Jesus is just like us. He's human, like us. Now, I think we could say, yeah, I agree with that. Jesus has a human nature like we do. But what is being expressed today through this one advertising campaign is that Jesus is relatable to everybody, relates to our emotions in the sense that he expresses emotion over the same things we express emotion. He's human. We agree that he is human, but brothers and sisters, he's not just like us. He is God as well. He is holy. 
We cannot, we cannot be satisfied with a single dimension when it comes to the nature of the Son of God, either in His human nature or His divine nature. So these simplistic presentations have introduced more streams of heresies into an already confused world. But here we find that Jesus weeps. But what does He weep about? That's, that's the question. Are, are, are the average humans that are seeing Christ weeping over Jerusalem relating to this, or is this something altogether foreign to them? But what should it be for us? Well, we should be able to relate to us to this somewhat. The context here is that Jesus is well aware that the Jews are about to drop the bomb. They're about to reject him. They're going to crucify him within days of this point. Now, there's not a lot of debate that this passage refers to A.D. 70. There's a certain number of passages in the Gospels that refer to A.D. 70. The percentage of those passages are up for some debate. But here we find that Christ is prophetically seeing what is going to happen to the Jewish people. And I think we need to appreciate the sheer monumental importance of this event in world history from a biblical perspective. This is massive. A.D. 70 should take your breath away. It's the severing of the Jews from the vine of the church. And so there are two concerns, I, I believe, that, that bring out this emotional response from our Savior. And what is, well, first of all, it's the massive destruction that's to come upon Jerusalem, including the children. But secondly, it is that they did not know the time of their visitation. They did not know the things that would make for their peace. And the idea of making for their peace refers to their rest, their health, their welfare, not just you know, the way we think of peace is peace with others or a lack of conflict, but it really, the, the things that would make for uh, their restfulness, their health, and their general welfare, they, they did not recognize what would uh, make for their peace. They rejected Christ in the day of their visitation. Now, the word visitation here is the word episkopos. It's a word used for bishop or overseer in the church, but it's used several times as referring to what God does when he visits his people. So look at 1 Peter 2 and verse 12. That would be one example in which the, the word is used. And here the apostle says, Be sure your conduct is honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. So what is this? This is a point at which God comes down to visit. And one of the examples that came to my mind as I was considering this idea of visitation was the visit that God paid to Abraham and the inspection that he, uh, he did upon Sodom and Gomorrah. You remember that God comes down, has this visit with Abraham, and he sits down, he has lunch, and then he has that conversation with Abraham and then moves on to Sodom. He wanted to come down and visit Abraham and to inspect Sodom. So there does appear to be an opportunity. This is what I take from this. There is an opportunity that God gives to man in which, you know, we all have a close encounter with God. God comes down for an inspection or an interview. It's like a house visit, so to speak. Much, much like the elders of the church, the bishops or the overseers of the church, are supposed to pay home visits to the members of the church. We don't always do that as faithfully as we should, but that would be something similar 
to what is being conveyed here. Uh, this is the episcopos of God. This is the overseeing of God. God is coming down to pay a visit. And here we find that Jesus came down to visit. God came down to them to visit in the form of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So he sent his son to visit. That's, that's effectively what Jesus is saying here. But they didn't recognize, they didn't realize this. They didn't know that this was the key visitation. And of course, he came to his own, but his own received him not. That's what we read in John chapter 1. So for the Jews, they had rejected him. They had heard about Jesus, but they didn't really know. They didn't really internalize it. They didn't recognize it. They passed over him, and then they crucified him. So this was their grand opportunity. Later, he would move on to the Gentile world. Now, how do we interact with this passage, knowing that God is sovereign, the Holy Spirit regenerates the hearts and opens the eyes of the blind, but here Jesus is focusing in on the responsibility of these men to respond in faith. They missed the opportunity. So why is it that Christ weeps? And so I want to interact with that just for a moment. Because it seems odd, perhaps for some, that Jesus would have known that judgment was coming. Jesus would have known that they would reject him. Jesus would have known that there would be, at least for a large percentage of the Jews, uh, no work of the Holy Spirit to open their hearts to the word of God. They would become a, a parad. Uh, or a, they would become something of a, an example for future generations of those who had rejected God or rejected the visit of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, so what is this? They missed the opportunity. Why does Christ weep here? Now, I believe it's a combination of a few things. One is the hardness of their hearts, the sinfulness of sin, and the blindness of men's souls. This is a heartbreaking thing for our Savior when he sees these things. That people are so hard of heart, that they have so close of an encounter, they have such an opportunity to hear the word of God and yet still reject it. That, that to Christ, at least in his human nature, is something that causes him grief. The hardness of men's hearts, the sinfulness of sin, and the blindness of men's souls. The second thing is the horror of judgment coming upon the nation. Jesus can see what it's going to look like when women will cannibalize their children. You can read the story in Josephus and others who write on the horrific events of AD 70. But it's the combination of these things to see that these people are so hard of heart that the, the preaching of the word, the declaration of the love of God and the presentation of Christ to the people uh, receives such rejection. That, that kind of thing has, has got Jesus full of, of grief. And indeed the horror of judgment that is about to come upon the nation. And Christ responds in compassion. Now I don't think this should be odd to us. That on the one hand, yes, God is sovereign. Yet on the other hand, God is compassionate. He's been compassionate to obviously billions of people around the globe by sending water uh, to rain upon the earth, the just and the unjust. He's compassionate. We were traveling up uh, I-25 and seeing the mountains just covered with snow. I don't think I've seen that much snow on these mountains in the 30-some years we've been out here. But wow, to see the common grace 
uh, upon this state. And you know that water just melts and it flows down into the aquifers and it waters the, the tens of millions of people, not just here but also in Kansas and Nebraska, and many of whom, of course, have set themselves against the Lord and against His anointed. So, yet God is compassionate. God is merciful. And consider this, that Jesus was merciful to thousands of people who did not respond well to Him. Following the feeding of the 5,000, you remember in John chapter 6, many of them left, and then there were only the 12 that remained. So, there was such hardness of heart, and yet He was compassionate to those who would reject Him and go to hell. So he does not desire that any should perish, but that all come to repentance. You also remember that he loved the rich young ruler. And this to me is interesting in that it doesn't appear that the rich young ruler repented and, and had saving faith in Jesus, yet Jesus loved him. He had compassion upon him while the rich young ruler went away sorrowful. So all of this... I think should moderate our Calvinism to some extent, at least for some of us. I'm not saying that Calvin was right or wrong. I'm just simply saying that there are various factors we need to take into consideration. It should make perfect sense with both the compassion of Christ and the humanity of Christ operating that he would respond to the horrors of AD 70 in this emotional way. As we see the pictures ourselves of piles of dead bodies at Auschwitz or the killing fields of Cambodia, how do you respond to that? To ask you, how do you, how would you respond to that? Just kind of pass over and well, it serves them right. Do you think that's the right response? I don't think so. I think any Christian would say, no, we respond to that with a sense of compassion and mercy and hover for the kinds of evil that men bring about upon other men and women and children as well. So Jesus responds in compassion. Jesus responds with weeping. Jesus faces the reality of it. See, a lot of times we see these pictures of Auschwitz or the evil that men do. After a while, our hearts are hardened or we're desensitized to the evil that men do. But not so Christ. He sees the impact of it. He, doesn't, he goes even beyond the temporal destruction to consider the eternal destruction that the souls of men will face as they reject Christ. So let me explain it to you this way. I, I, think, I think we need to understand this balance between the desire of God and the purpose of, of God. How do we accept Romans 9 that God creates some vessels for honor and some for dishonor? And yet Christ is weeping over the rejection of the Jews and the destruction of AD 70. How do we balance these two things in our minds? Are they contradictory? Does, does Romans 9 on the one hand contradict the statement that God would have that all men repent and that, that none perish? How do these things work together in our minds? Now, I think this would be a good example because humans are fairly complex creatures. We are. And I think certainly we can say that, that God himself has complexity to his nature, complexities that we may not be able to work out in our own minds. But let's use the natural example for a moment. I have, in my career as a parent, pulled a sliver out of the hand of a child. And yes, I have heard the screams of bloody murder in the process. Perhaps some of you parents understand what I'm talking about. 
Now, if in the process of pulling a sliver out of my beautiful child's hand, while she's saying, oh, no, daddy, don't do this. Oh, daddy, you're torturing me. Now, if we would stop for just a moment and ask Kevin Swanson, do you desire to do what you're doing right now? Are you delighting in this action that you're taking as you're performing minor surgery upon your child without anesthesia? How do you think I would respond to that? I say, Actually, I, I find no delight in this whatsoever. This, I'm not having a good time right now. I'm not delighting. I'm not desiring. And then you would turn to me and you'd say, but are you purposing to do this? How do you think I would respond? Yes, I purpose to do this, and yet I do not desire. I do not delight in this. So I'm giving you a sense of the tension that exists within a human. There are complexities within a human. Now, do you think there might be complexities in the nature of God, some of which we may never be able to define or figure out? I think so. So I hope that understands that you understand this. There are multiple emotions operating. There is emotion as well as purpose that operates in all of God's works. And so Christ weeps over what is about to happen to the men, women, and children in Jerusalem. Now let's move on. Immediately after weeping, he demonstrates what I would call a boiling jealousy. A boiling jealousy. He comes into the temple, verse 45, and begins to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple, saying to them, it is written, my house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Now we opened up in Psalm 69 tonight, and there we read, the zeal of your house has eaten me up. And this is quoted in John chapter 2. So this word zeal is a word for hot jealousy, or a zealous, a jealous hot response, and I think we could accurately say angry response on the part of our Savior. Now, it's also interesting that in John 2, he takes the time to braid a whip. It appears that there is something very intentional going on here. Jesus isn't responding in some sort of anger that just blows up without intention, without thinking about what he's doing. He's reacting in a proper way, obviously a proper moral way, but also in a proper emotional way. He's taken time to braid a whip, at least according to John in John chapter 2, and then he responds intentionally, emotionally, and drives out those who bought and sold in the temple. Now, here's my question tonight. Why is he so jealous? Why the hot anger and the intentionality about cleansing the temple. And the answer is that the temple is the house of God. Now, when we say it's the house of God, and Jesus refers to it as the house of God here, what does that mean? Well, that's where God lives. Now, most people care about where they live. They would rather it not be strewn with junk and manure, for example, right? I mean, we, this is where we live. We don't want to bring all the pigs in and all the dogs, well, a few dogs, but, uh, but, you know, they'll be confined to a certain area and they're going to be trained and going to be sure that the cat knows where to go and all the rest, right? We're, we're concerned about where we live. And likewise, God is jealous about his house and his family. He intends for the house of God to be a, a relational place. 
not an economically active political institution or anything of this sort. And, and what happened during this period of time is that the high priests, Annas and Caiaphas, Caiaphas being the son-in-law of Annas, were very much known for their economic trading and their avarice. In the Talmud, the Annas dynasty was known to be great hoarders of money. The first century priests of the house of Annas would beat the people with rods to collect money or more hides of sheep and goats. So this is what we read in the Talmud. So, so they have that reputation, not, not just what we read in Scripture, but in other extra-scriptural readings, we find that these guys were very covetous, and they were greedy, and they wanted more money. Three years ago, archaeologists identified Annas' house. It was filled with luxuries that have only been found in the house of Herod. So Herod and Annas together were the most wealthy people in Israel at that time. And Annas, of course, one of the most politically connected people in Judea. So their wealth and position had everything to do with keeping the Romans happy. They were the political sycophants of the day. They knew very well the side on which their bread was buttered. And they worked very hard to collect money from the people. They had turned the house of God into a den of thieves. So again, the house of God, what is it? Well, here Jesus said, it is a house of prayer. What does that mean? What does it mean to be a house of prayer? Well, a house of prayer is a place in which we talk to God. So don't make it too complicated. It's a place in which we have conversations with God. We hear from God. We speak to Him. Now, generally, when you, when you think about a house being a place in which we're having conversations, that means that we are in relationship with each other. It's a personable place. So we come to God through blood sacrifice, in his house. And that's what happened in the temple. Now, we come to God through the blood sacrifice of Jesus. It's how we, how we come to him. That's how we pray to him. We pray to him through Christ, in the name of Jesus Christ. And we speak to him as our Father. We're thankful to him. We're perpetually grateful for his tremendous gifts and blessings that he pours out upon us, where we enjoy the presence of the giver more than the gifts. And, and that's what Jesus was concerned about. That where the church isn't relational, where it's not personable, where we're not engaging in regular prayer, but maybe something else is going on, that's, that's not what God wants. God wants the church to be a covenant body in which God's people are coming together to relate to Him as the family of God, as the bride of Christ. The Jews were destroying the covenant relationship with God by idolatry, by avarice, by the rejection of the covenant promises, and by the rejection of the Messiah. They were running roughshod over everything. They were rejecting the day of their visitation, coming from the passage here before us tonight. One of the final parables in the ministry of Jesus comes in Matthew 21. Remember the parable of the vine dressers. Remember what happens. The, the, vine, the, the owner, the landowner, uh, lends it out to these vine dressers and sends his servants. They kill the servants. And then he finally sends his son at the end. We read in verse 38, Matthew 21, when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. And so they, they took him and they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. And then Jesus turned to the Jews 
in this parable. As you imagine what they were thinking when he was telling them this parable. Throughout the ministry of Jesus, he becomes more and more plain. And, and he lays it out in stark detail before these Jewish religious leaders. And uh, he asks the Jews here in verse 40, Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? And they said to him, this is the Jews, they said to him, He will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits of their seasons. Well, they took the warning. They, they knew what this parable was about. And then verse 45, the same passage, says the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables. They perceived that he was speaking of them. And when they sought to lay their hands on him, they feared the multitudes because they took him for a prophet. And that's precisely what our final verses say. Verse 47 to 48 of Luke 19 tonight. So they still wanted to kill him. After, after hearing the, the message, after rejecting the son... After, after rejecting that relationship with the vine dresser, with the father, with God, they still wanted to kill the son. They obviously failed in the day of their visitation. They lost their last chance for salvation and sealed their own fate. So let's close it tonight with some application. Why is this man weeping over Jerusalem? Why is this man weeping over the city? He's weeping over the apostasy, the deception, the rebellion, the blindness, all of that, and the judgment to come upon them. Let me return to the billion-dollar publicity campaign for Jesus one more time. He gets us. What is it about us that he gets? Does he weep for the same reasons the Jews are weeping? If they are weeping. Does he get how the Jews feel? Does he understand their pain? Does he agree with us? Does he agree with them? Does he sympathize with their feelings of anger and bitterness towards God? Their ungratefulness? Their rejection of him? That's obviously not it, right? That's, that's not it. He doesn't get them. He doesn't agree with them. He doesn't sympathize with them. He gets that the Jews rejected him. He gets that they're blinded. He gets that they're locked up in sin and rebellion. And the problem has only gotten worse generation after generation. Now, it's true. Hebrews speaks of Jesus sympathizing with Christians, that is, believers who are suffering for him. So, Jesus sympathizes with us. There's a sense in which he gets us. But, but the real problem is, is emphasis here. It's not about him agreeing with us or with our bad attitudes or even our good attitudes, or our legitimate concerns. The real question is this. Do you get him? It's not whether he gets us. The question to present before all of us is, does he get, do, do we get him? Are, are we aware of this the day of our visitation? He's come to visit us. He's come to call us to repentance. What will we do in the day of our visitation, when God is present, when the call is before us, what do we do? This is the application for all of us. Can you hear the call when you hear the words of Jesus? And they heard these words. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, 
You shall find rest to your souls. There's something attractive there. Is that drawing you in? Are, are you hearing the words of Jesus and saying amen to it? You're hearing the harder words of Jesus, the convict of sin. But those other words that draw us in to him as our Savior. Or John 7, he stood up in the last day, the great day of the feast, and he cried out, said with a loud voice, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believes on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. In other words, Jesus called them. He, he made a loud call to the, the, the people of Israel, as did the apostles after Pentecost. There, there was a call. These people had access to Jesus. They received the visitation. But how did they respond? They looked the other way. They argued over tertiary matters. They were too taken up with arguments over the Sabbath keeping. Whether there's marriage or giving in marriage or whatever in heaven. This was the sad thing about these people. They distracted themselves from the core message. And it's so sad when people hear the core gospel message, but don't really respond with, 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 I get it. I get him. I see why he came. They're, they're arguing over here on these tertiary polemical things, but they don't really get impacted by the fact that they are sinners and the Son of God died on the cross for them, rose from the dead, and now enables us to get up and walk in newness of life tomorrow morning. They don't get it. Instead, they're off arguing these tertiary matters and moving into polemics, which is so common in American churches today. And it's a diversion. They miss the core message. And it's so sad. And this is why Jesus wept. They came so close. They heard the message, but they were distracted. And they would not receive it. They did not respond in faith. So the question for all of us is, did we get it? Did you get it? Did you, did you receive the message of Christ in the day of his visitation? And the second thing, I think, is that we do need to weep over America. We need to weep over the, the condition of the church, the liberal church, the conservative church, the fragmented church, the church that's eating itself because there is no love there. Let's weep over the slow but steady demise of Presbyterianism, the PCUSA, the EPC, even the PCA. We need to feel a little compassion for the hundreds of millions of young people who've been led out of the churches and led astray by bad worldviews, by the scandals in the churches, and by the heresies and the watered-down gospel where they're just not getting it anymore. Let's weep over America. Let's feel the pain a little bit. Again, we may not express ourselves all in the same way as Christ did. There may be other cultural means by which we express, but there's got to be some kind of a broken spirit, a broken heart, or a pain in the heart while we see our relatives, we see our friends, we see other churches in what is going on around us. Oh, may God open the hearts and the minds the people who hear the gospel message in our day, that there would be a revival before it's too late. It seems to me we are on the cusp of severe judgment. And now would be a perfect time 
for a spiritual revival where sensitivity to the Word of God and acceptance of the Word and an amen to the Word would only increase in volume in our churches here in Elizabeth and, and all throughout Colorado and around this country. May God bring revival, spiritual enlightenment, spiritual sensitivity and reviving to our people today as well. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you that we have this demonstration of the heart of Christ, the compassion of Christ, the commitment of Christ to the redeeming of his people, as well as the concern of Christ for the souls of men and women, not just the lives of men and women destroyed in a temporal judgment, but their souls, their eternal souls. Oh God, that we would see it as Christ saw it, that we respond as Christ responds, that we would have a passion for souls and a passion for the gospel message. And oh Father, I pray that by your Spirit, men and women and children would be open and ready to receive the gospel in the day of their visitation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.